Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6? The destruction of Jericho, I call it. He who fights the battle of Jericho will read the entire chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great joy. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came after the Ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The set, then the seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. The armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. 
only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Amen. Well, Joshua begins that Deuteronomistic history, the former prophets, historical books, whatever you want to call it. Uh, found, uh, it's founded and based upon what God has said in the Pentateuch, especially Deuteronomy, as God has entered into that old covenant with old covenant Israel concerning life in the land. If they do what's right, things will go well in the land. If they do, don't do what's right, they're going to be kicked out of that land. They'll receive blessing or receive cursing based on how they obey the Lord God most high according to that covenant. Now, Judges is not positive. Samuel's not great. Kings are not great as well. But Joshua, uh, for the most part, is fairly positive as the people seem to do what Yahweh says. Still some blips and still some issues. Uh, but by all, uh, but, uh, by all accounts, Joshua is a positive uh, uh, a foray into land. Judges is all negative. I mean, there's some fun things about Judges, but Judges, by and large, uh, is a negative account of the descent of pe the people uh, into sin. Uh, so the people have now entered into the land. Uh, they have now are about to take the land. Uh, remember, Joshua is all about God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, he's giving them the land after 400 years, and the whole book is centered around the land. We saw entering the land uh, in verses 1 through 4. Now we're seeing conquering the land, verses, uh, sorry, chapters 5 through 12, dividing the land, chapters 13 through 21, and retaining the land, chapters 22 through 24. That all comes from Dale Ralph Davis. And so we saw last time how after they've entered, they're about to, uh, about to enter into Jericho and take the land. God prepared them for that conquest. God prepared them by circumcising them and then having them take the Passover and then we have the angel of the Lord or the commander of the Lord's army coming to affirm to Joshua what they shall do as Jericho shall be devoted to destruction. So we see the battle itself, uh, Joshua and the battle of Jericho in chapter 6. Now the problem that we see comes from verses 17 through 19. The problem of being devoted to destruction. And the reason these Canaanites are devoted to destruction is because of their status before God Most High. That is, they've sinned against God Most High. They violated God's law. They have sinned, especially as natural law. They have gone against God, and God is using Israel as judgment. If one is in Adam, now not in Christ, they are away from the presence of the Lord, and they are under his curse. And God must judge. And so we see that the day of judgment has come for Jericho. The day of judgment has come for the Canaanites by way of the people of Israel. And God was very long-suffering with them, but the day of the Lord approaches. Now, there's a lot of positive things, though, that we can see even as that day approaches. We see that one can flee the judgment to come by faith, and one can flee by faith in the foolishness 
of God's strange ways or the appearance of foolish, the foolishness of God's ways. So being devoted to destruction is a type of final judgment. And the way to flee that is by faith in God, by faith in Christ. And that's what Joshua wants us to see. That's what Joshua 6 is teaching us. In Joshua 6, we see the Lord marches and fights for his people as Joshua takes Jericho. The people must trust in the Lord God most high. They must trust in his promises, and they must trust in his word as they're going to engage in a very strange way of military warfare by marching around that city. So it's all about the Lord and how he is the one who fights the battle of Jericho. And we'll look at this under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the Lord who prepares, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, we'll see the Lord who marches, verses 6 through 21. And then lastly, we'll see the Lord who saves, verses 22 through 27. So the Lord who prepares or the Lord who plans. Then secondly, the Lord who marches. And third, the Lord who saves. So let's first look at the Lord who prepares in verses 1 through 5. And notice we see the obstacle uh, for the people in verse 1. Now, this is all in the context of the commander of the Lord's army. Uh, some commentators put chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 with chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Uh, it's the same context. Uh, Joshua sees this man who has his sword drawn. He asks, who are you for? He says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua worships. The commander of the Lord's army says, you're on holy ground, which highlights that he is God, that he is the captain of salvation. And then this one who is the commander of the Lord's army is still speaking in verses 2 through 5. But we see the problem in verse 1. Now, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. We see that they're trying to hide because they're fearful. We've seen that they have rejected uh, fleeing to God. Instead, they're going to try to defend themselves. There seems to be an apparent obstacle to God's plan. The walls are quite high. The walls are quite fortified. The walls are quite secure. What are the people going to do? What is God going to do? Now, even though Jericho's defenses were formidable, the people of Canaan are still very fearful. Rahab has told us this, and we also see that in chapter 5, 1 as well. The hearts of the Canaanites have melted, and so they're trying one last-ditch effort to try and perhaps protect themselves. But as we'll see, one cannot stop the power of the Lord God Most High. And so we see, even though there's an obstacle, God still has his purpose and his plan. Verses 2 through 5. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. That's comforting. That's encouraging. Here are these walls. Here's this fortified city. And God says, it's yours. And then God is going to indicate how this is going to take place. God has given a promise, and I was going to give a plan to, to have that promise fulfilled. And so we see that plan. And it's a little bit strange. It goes against perhaps some military uh, planning or military strategy. Now, Jericho is going to be a first fruits. The people have entered into the land. And so it's going to be dedicated to God most high. And God is going to dedicate it to himself. But he's also going to test the people by the way in which he's going to bring it down. And notice what he says. Verse 3. 
You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. So the mighty men shall march. We'll see all the people are going to march. They're going to march around it once. This you shall do for six days. So they get up early in the morning. They march around once and they go back to their camp. But um, and then the priests are going to lead them. Verse four and seven priests shall bear the uh, bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. So we have these trumpets that are going to be repeated as the people are marching. The trumpets are going to be blowing. There's going to be a specific order of a way in which it ought to be done on that seventh day. Now, trumpets do play an important role in Israel's history. Uh, it was used for summoning Israel, whether it was for a special occasion or perhaps their annual or uh, monthly feasts. We see this in Numbers chapter 10. It's used in Leviticus 25 to refer to jubilees, to summon the people, to call the people, to herald the people. It's also used uh, with the voice of the Lord and his, the declaration of his holiness in Exodus 19. He is going to speak. He's going to proclaim. Here is God most high. He is the one who the Israelites must listen to. But it's also used with the advancement of Yahweh as well. As he is the one who leads the procession. This is also in Numbers 10 and 11 as well. Yahweh marches before them. He summons them as he's going to lead them. But he also is making his way as he advances. And certainly we see this in 2 Samuel 6. As the ark of the Lord is making its way to Zion, as Yahweh's presence is being secured uh, on that mountain, it is a sign of heralding the good news, but also heralding the, perhaps the terror of God as well. Henry says they, the priests, proclaimed war with the Canaanites and so uh, struck a terror upon them. For by terrors upon their spirits, they were to be conquered and subdued. Thus, God's, God's ministers, by the solemn declarations of his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, must blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in the holy mountain. that The sinners in Zion may be afraid. They are God's herald to denounce war against all those that go on still in their trespasses, but say, we shall have peace, though we go on. And two, they proclaimed God's gracious presence with Israel. Canaan, God is coming. Canaan, God is going to judge. Canaan, there is the wrath to come. There is judgment to come. But it's also an indicator that God is with Israel, that God is with his chosen race. There is this, that God is either with, you're either for God or you are against God. And we see that here, God is with Israel. And so put life and courage into them. The trumpets were to, 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 to scare the Canaanites but also to give the Israelites encouragement. It was appointed that they went to war. The priest should encourage them with the assurance of God's presence with them. And so the priest shall march. They shall have these uh, seven of them shall have these trumpets that they shall blow. And notice they shall go before the ark. There are many things repeated in this chapter. Seven trumpets, the ark of the Lord. One thing that's uh, very quick is the actual destruction of the walls. I mean, that's like one verse, boom, there it is. It's all this build up to get to that point because the writer wants us to see, Joshua wants us to see the God who is with them. And the Ark of the Lord is mentioned 10 times. 
God is with his people. He was with them as they crossed the Jordan, and he is with them as they enter into Canaan and engage in battle with the Canaanites. Even with this fortified city, God shall fight for them. He will be with them. So he gives them this command. He says, the seventh day, chapter four, you shall march around the city seven times and the priest shall blow the trumpets. Verse five, it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So after it falls, then all the people go in and use their swords to kill and devote to destruction. Uh, all of the Jerichoites uh, when the walls fall. So this is what's going to happen. This is Yahweh's plan. We see the seven, seven day cycle, seven days, seven cycles, last shout of the people. It's not your typical military strategy, but again, that is the point. Even though God's plan seems strange to the people, will they trust in him? And even that, I, that language of seven, certainly seven plays an important role uh, in the Bible. Uh, certainly it signifies completion. Sevens are typically sanctified. That seventh day is sanctified. Uh, one writer suggests that it's also to commemorate the Passover and unleavened bread. They've just taken the Passover. It's to commemorate God's uh, being with them as they took them up out of the land of Egypt. Now he's going to be with them as they enter into the land of Canaan and take the land. Even in Numbers 9, after they have their second Passover, there is a procession that comes after that. God leads his people. Uh, and so, um, uh, so they have Passover, unleavened bread. It's all signifying causing the people to stop and remember what Yahweh has done uh, for them. So the people are going to march. Yahweh's going to march with them. Yahweh shall be with them. Uh, that was his plan in verses one through five. Now, it's very encouraging for us to know that God has a plan. This is what we call God's decree, right? That is his immutable, unchangeable decree, that he decrees all things freely and unchangeably according to his own good pleasure. I mean, the Bible speaks in this way. He works all things according to his purpose. He works all things according to his good pleasure. I mean, it pleased the Lord. I mean, all that language speaks about the plan of God, God's eternal decree for all things uh, that uh, uh, are in time and space. We see the execution of that in creation and providence and redemption is a special providence. We see his execution of his plan for Israel and thankfully, we can be assured that God is executing his plan for the church. All things work together for the good of his people, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a comforting thing for the people of God in a perplexing world. An unbeliever does not have that. An unbeliever does not have a God they can lean upon. An unbeliever does not have a God who has a plan and is executing it for his glory, but for our good. And even for the people of God, we sometimes question what God is doing. We don't always make sense of what God is doing. We kind of throw our hands up in the air because we don't know what God is doing. But then again, we aren't God. Davis says, greater obstacles for his people call forth his mighty help. Even though we must admit that sometimes 
Nothing looks quite so unlikely as the decree of God. And this certainly wouldn't have been a weird plan given to the people, given to Joshua as they march around Jericho to take that first city in the land of Canaan. But God has a purpose and God has a plan and God is preparing them for that battle with Jericho. So that's the Lord who prepares. Let's then look secondly at the Lord who marches, verses 6 through 21. So the plan is conveyed to the priests. The plan is conveyed to the people. Yahweh will be in their midst. The priest shall announce his presence. Verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. We've seen this pattern. God says something to Joshua. Joshua goes and then says something to the people. Will they listen? It's one thing for Joshua to listen, but will the people listen? Obedience is important here. Obedience is important for Old Covenant people. And obedience is going to be very important when we get to chapter 7. But will they do it? So take up the, uh, he tells the priest, here's what you must do. He tells the people, verse 7, proceed, march around the city. Let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So the people, the mighty men of valor, they shall walk first. They shall walk with the Lord who is in the midst of them. And then we see the plan in action. Verse 8, verses 8 through 14. So notice, they do it the six days. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. So God is in their midst. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you all shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Again, you shall only make a sound. You shall only shout when I tell you to shout. Right now, it's going to be just one march. The trumpets are going to sound, but you need to wait. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God requires obedience, not if your heart is in it or not. It has to be according to God's word. They can't say, we're excited. We're going to shout. We're ready for battle. No, they have to do it when God had said or when Joshua shall say to them uh, before they, the, the, the walls come crumbling down. And so they march around uh, the six days. Uh, we see the, that's the first day. We see the second day, verse 12. Uh, uh, and Joseph, uh, Joseph, Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. They did it again. Can you imagine the Jerichoites wondering what they're doing? Here are these guys marching around. This does, this looks a little odd, uh, but that's what they did. And the priests took up the ark of the Lord, verse 13, then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns. I told you it was repeated trumpets and ark and all that sort of stuff. The ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six 
days. So the first six days unfold as Yahweh has said. Now it's the seventh day. And notice this is when we see the walls come tumbling down. Verse 15. It came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. So on the seventh day, they had to do it seven times, not just the once. And on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpet, that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This day has been set apart. This day has been set apart for the consecration to the, uh, to the people, it, or a consecration to God. It's the completion. They've come. They've entered in. And now this place is going to be set apart for them and for God most high as a first fruits to God. And so on that seventh day, the trumpets blow. Joshua says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now it's time. Now, verse 17, he explains what's going to happen. Or some even say perhaps verses 17 through 19 came beforehand, but it's here for uh, um, uh, at the narrative to, to drive home the point of what's going to occur. But uh, commentators are divided. But in any case, shout to the Lord. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. We saw her faith. We saw her hear about what Yahweh had done, and she believed and sought refuge in him. And her example of faith is seen in James 2. That is, it's not just she had words, but she had, it wasn't just, uh, she didn't have just a faith without works, but she had works to affirm her faith, works to affirm she believed in Yahweh. She believed in who he is. She believed in what he would do, and she find, found refuge in him by sending the spies away. So that's in James 2, 25. Only she, everything shall be destroyed except for her. And you, verse 18, by all means, everyone else abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed. When you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, that language of accursed, that language of doomed or destruction, uh, is the word harem. It's used regarding harem warfare. That is, that God is using Israel, again, as judgment, as instruments in the hands of an angry God. The righteous anger to take out the Canaanites. Now, a lot of people struggle with this narrative because everyone thinks the Canaanites were these innocent people. And here comes the Israelites coming to destroy these people, just having their family dinner. Well, what does Genesis 15, 16 say? Genesis 15, 16 highlights for us why God delays and does not give Abraham the land that he promised to him right away. That's because God is long suffering. He was waiting for it to get very, very bad. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They suppose that the God of the Old Testament is some giant meanie with no reason or purpose for what he is doing. 
Remember, God is the God over all, and he is the judge of the earth. Shall he not do right? Davis says, in the biblical view, the God of the Bible uses none too righteous. Remember in Deuteronomy, God says to them that when you enter into land, you shall not say it's because you are righteous and better than everyone. It's because I chose you. It's not because they're more righteous. It's because God, it's because God chose them. They were supposed to be righteous. They have their problems, and we'll talk about that. Uh, in a little bit, but they were uh, they were not they were certainly not righteous. So uses none too righteous Israel as the instrument of his just judgment on a people who had persistently reveled in their iniquity. This will not answer your dilemmas with the conquest, but you must see the Old Testament's view. The conquest is not gross injustice, but the highest and most patient justice. Yahweh is the righteous judge, and Yahweh is also the mighty divine warrior. He has chosen his people. He fights for his people. Uh, Jericho is the first fruits of his people to him for what he gives them, and he has the right over the spoil as the one who fights for his people. And that place shall be devoted to destruction, and the gold and silver and bronze is dedicated to the Lord God most high. So there is a reason for this holy warfare. We also see rules concerning it in Deuteronomy 20. Uh, there's a difference between holy war and just war. Uh, and uh, it was distinguishing, especially as he, God uses Israel concerning the Canaanites in the land of Canaan. And the extermination too is so that Israel wouldn't be tempted. Guess what happens? They're not all exterminated. Israel's tempted, and they go worship other gods, which they should not do. Israel is gonna. Uh, Israel went after other gods, which they should not have. Um, certainly, we do see here, though, that the Jerichoites uh, are exterminated at this point. Uh, so uh, it's an odd plan, uh, but it is God's way, it is God's purpose, and it's also perhaps to test the obedience of the people. Will they do what Yahweh says? Spoiler alert, Achan doesn't do what Yahweh says, and Achan ruins it for everybody, which we'll see in chapter 7 in two weeks' time. But Joshua gives the command, Joshua gives the instructions, everything shall be devoted to destruction except for Rahab. And then we see the actual falling of the walls proper in verses 20 through 22. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, but the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Again, it's not about the walls, but it's about the God who marches with his people and the God who fights for his people and the God who uh, defeats the enemies of his people, which he does here. The walls come tumbling down and the people destroy everyone in that city. Now, when you consider the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and you consider God's plan with that, it is also considered foolish, isn't it? It's also considered very strange. 
Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how it's a foolishness to the Gentiles and the stumbling block to the Jews, because people are perplexed by a man who is God and by God who became man. People struggle with that very idea. Or even not just that, they struggle with the fact that your champion died. That would have been a big stumbling block to the Gentiles. Here's one who is battered. Here's one who's bloodied. Here's one who's bruised. Here's one who suffers and dies as a terrorist. Is this your champion? Is this your king? And that's why Paul desired to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For it's how God saves. The plan of God is perplexing. That's why every other religion puts the onus on people, puts the onus on everyone else. Here's how you get to heaven. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Not that. All these sorts of things. Don't touch. Don't taste. Don't. The Christianity is the only religion that says it's Christ who died. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't save yourself. Jesus Christ is the one who saves you. It is a foolish thing, yet we receive it and believe it by faith. Even as we walk in our Christian life, you know how we walk in our Christian life, dear brethren? Not by our own strength, but in Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12. Christians forget that. A lot of Christians like to think that we're in by or we get in by faith and we stay in by works. We're always in because of Christ. He is, the, uh, he is sufficient. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we look to him. And guess who was an example of one who was looking ahead? The people at Jericho. Hebrews 11, verses, verse 30, highlights this. And 31 also has Rahab as well. But Hebrews 11, verse 30 says, By faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It was perplexing. It was odd. But they trusted in the promises of God. They trusted in the word of God, that God would deliver them, that God would be with them as they fight for, as they take out their enemies. In verse 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who did not believe. The Jerichoites did not believe except her when she had received the spies with peace. Salvation is the same in the Old and the New Testament. It's by faith and by faith in Christ to come. And Christ is the one who conquers. Christ is the captain of our salvation. In Christ, there is life. And we see the foolishness of God's plan executed perfectly in the one who lived, died, and rose again. And thankfully, God does march with his people. And thankfully, we also have a God who saves his people. So the last point this evening is the Lord who saves. Verses 22 through 27. Notice the salvation and blessing of Rahab in verses 22 through 25. Notice what she was saved from in verses 22 through 24. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. The walls came tumbling down, but her house is still there as God promised. You see, she believed by faith 
and trusted in Yahweh and sent the spies away. But this is also another token and example of her faith. Her and the spies entered into that agreement. She believed and she, and she was spared. And the young men, verse 23, who had been spies, went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. This shady lady from Jericho finds salvation. And notice what she finds salvation from, verse 24. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. Salvation is always from something. It is, as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. From what? From our sins. And from what our sins deserve, namely judgment. The Jerichoites have received their just due for their sins, but in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Therefore, we will not receive our just due because our just due was poured out upon him in our stead. That's why penal substitutionary atonement is so vital. That's why the sacrifice of Christ is so vital. That's why he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people that we might approach unto God by his blood and Rahab believed and she fled the wrath to come in Yahweh of Israel. She fled the burning and the fire of that city in Yahweh. And it says, verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household in all that she had a Canaanite, a harlot, a Gentile was spared. And she is of the line of Christ. Yahweh is protecting his line even here through Rahab the harlot. So she dwells in Israel to this day, probably because Joshua wrote Joshua. We don't know for sure, but Joshua wrote, perhaps did write Joshua. She hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She saved Jericho, shut themselves to Israel. But Rahab sought refuge in Yahweh. Gil says, nothing is impossible with God. No defenses ever so strong are anything against him. Unlikely means are sometimes made of use of by, use of by him. Faith stops at nothing when it has the word of God to rest upon. And what God does, he does in his own time and in his own way. This may be an emblem of the fall of the walls of the hearts of unregenerate men, of their unbelief, hardness, enmity, and vain confidence, of the conversion and subjection of them unto Christ through the preaching of the gospel, which in the eyes of men is as mean and despicable and as unlikely to bring about such an event as the sounding of the ram's horn might be to the inhabitant of Jericho. God is the God who brings great salvation, even in the face of man's so-called confusion. And God does so by his might and his power. And we see that with Rahab the harlot. So she is blessed. She is saved. But Jericho is cursed. Verses 26 uh, and 27. Notice the curse proper, verse 26. 
Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. That is, he's bringing a charge for Israel that if anyone builds the city, not necessarily if anyone dwells in that city, but he who builds that city, he shall be accursed. And there was a dark disobedience that happens in 1 Kings 16 that fulfills this. Probably what that means is, is as he begins to lay the foundation, his son dies. And by the time he gets to the actual putting the gates in, the youngest son shall die. As he's building it, he shall lose son after son. And so 1 Kings 16, we see this fulfilled in Israel. This is during the time of Ahab and that wicked witch Jezebel. Uh, but verse 30, uh, was it verse 34? It's just after God describes Ahab. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab, not a good guy. But in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. It shows how accursed Israel had become. Shows how terrible and how Israel descended into such wickedness. God said, if you do what's right, blessing. If you do what's wrong, cursing. And this happens to Hiel of Bethel as he loses his sons for building the house of Jericho, according to what Joshua had said in verse 26. Now, what's interesting is Matthew Henry Ports points something out with the place of Jericho. And maybe I'm allegorizing or maybe he's allegorizing, but later on in redemptive history, Jericho does receive someone who walks through it. And two great events happen in Jericho as one makes his way to Jerusalem to die on behalf of his people. And all three of the synoptics mention that city. And the Bible usually withdraws things. So if it says something, we need to pay attention to what it's saying. You know who was, I guess, healed in Jericho or who was saved in Jericho? Does anybody know? There was a wee little man who was there. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, salvation came to his house. Or blind Bartimaeus, or the two blind men, however you want, whichever um, uh, account you have. But Jericho is mentioned. And I didn't make that connection. Uh, when I preached on Mark 10, uh, certainly I did draw back to Joshua chapter 6, but I didn't make that connection that it's Christ who's walking through and Christ proclaims, you know, that the blind see and that salvation comes to the house of that wee little man, a wee little man was he. So that's a bit of an encouragement as we consider God's, I don't know, I want to say reversal, but God's grace to Jericho as Jesus makes his way through there in the Gospels. And then verse 27, the fame of Joshua spreads, and the Lord's nearness is affirmed again. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. God had promised to be with Joshua, as God promised, as Yahweh was with him in the Jordan, he was with him in Jericho. 
God had made, fulfilled his promise to Abraham, but God fulfilled his promise to Joshua as well. A big promise and a little promise, if you will. I guess it's a big promise that he's going to be with him, but we typically think of the Abrahamic promise bigger, perhaps we could say, but it's still God being with his people. What he said to Joshua is affirmed. The Lord was with Joshua. And also God's promise concerning his fame spreads as God promised. And what's interesting is throughout the rest of the book, there's going to be a repeated refrain as God had done to Jericho and its king. This was an assurance. This was a confirmation. This was an affirmation of what God was doing through Joshua for his people, that they might dispossess the land that was promised to them uh, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the salvation that God brings for his people, the, the, the fulfillment that God brings for his people. And I think the application, and this world will close, is very clear. We need to appreciate that salvation that God does bring. God's plan with the foolishness of the gospel brings the unlikeliest of people into his fold. Would any have thought that Rahab the harlot would be brought into the fold of God? And perhaps you're here today and you are the unlikeliest of people to be brought into the fold of God. It shows that God is the one who delivers his people against the walls of Jericho. It was God who delivered Rahab from the judgment to come upon Jericho. God saves sinners from the judgment to come, and he saves sinners by removing hearts of stone. It is the power that God shows. It is the power of God for salvation. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is of God. He has his plan. We see its accomplishment in Christ, and we see its application in the hearts and lives of undeserving sinners like you and I. And he saves sinners in Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And when you consider God's word, when you consider man's rebellion, when you consider your former ways, who then shall be saved? Shall we not say salvation is of the Lord? That's what Joshua is teaching us as the Lord fights the battle of Jericho. Well, let us pray. Our good God, thank you that you are so very gracious towards your people. Thank you for your decree. Thank you for your accomplishment. And thank you for your application. We are undeserving of the salvation that you've given to us. We are undeserving of the mercy that you've shown to us. And may it cause us to praise you. May it cause us to honor you. May it cause us by your spirit to walk in holiness as those who've been set apart. And we pray that we would worship. We pray that we would obey. We pray that we would walk and live in a manner consistent with your word because of your great salvation. And thank you that as we walk, as we are being sanctified, as we are persevering, uh, we do so by your strength. Thank you that you walk with us. Thank you that you are near to us. Thank you that Christ is that tabernacle and he is the head of his, uh, his church. He is the head of the body. Thank you that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the indwelling that you are near and dear to your people. We confess so often it feels like as if you are distant. It feels like your countenance does not shine upon us. 
but help us to be reminded of our forgiveness in Christ. Help us to be reminded of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to know that light that you shine upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So may we know this always. May we preach that gospel to ourselves always. And may we appreciate that you are the Lord who fights for your people. Thank you that Christ conquered sin and death. Thank you that Christ is the captain of our salvation, conquered our hearts and removed hearts of stone and gave hearts of flesh. And thank you that your salvation uh, continues to go forward and your elect are being called, your elect are being drawn, your elect are being saved. And we pray that you would do so by your might and your power. So give us comfort and encouragement, especially for your people, as we have many trials and tribulations, many issues that we have to deal with. May we know that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.